welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favorite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking vampire fiction with Jay Kristoff. Jay is a world-renowned serial killer of fictional characters, having written 17 novels, most of which end in blood. He's a number one New York Times bestseller, multi-award winner, and has a sculpted black goatee that would put the devil himself to shame. Mr. Christoph, welcome to the show. Hey, mate. Thanks for having me. Um, so your name has come actually come up a, a bunch in previous episodes, funnily enough. Um, we're talking horror with Alan, yeah, horror oh, with bad, Alan Baxter. No, all good. Space operas with Amy Ogden, YA fantasy with Sabah Tahir, and dark fantasy with Peter V. Brett. So all of those authors have mentioned you at one point or other about. Oh, wow. That's good like, company to be keeping. So, yeah. So, I'll, uh, I mean, I'll send them a card at Christmas. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a wide range of genres. And then, like, your Lotus War novels are kind of steampunk esque as well. So, like, how do you how do you think about genre and how would you class yourself as like when people, do you just say fantasy and sci-fi to sort of cover it all? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, pretty much fantasy and sci-fi. If you say spec fic, people won't know what the hell you're talking about. So yeah, fantasy and sci-fi is what I tell people. Um, I mean, weirdly enough, my, I mean, you can't call it genre, my demographics break down on genre lines. So a lot of my YA is sci-fi and a lot of my adult is fantasy, strangely enough. That's just the way it's worked out. Mm. But yeah, mm. for, for ease of definition, when you're talking at dinner parties or whatever, and you're telling people what you do, you, you tell them that you're a sci-fi fantasy author. And weirdly enough, yeah. you, ha- you often have to, over the years, I've learned you have to preface it with like something really wanky, like. I am a New York Times bestselling science fiction and fantasy author because if you say you're a sci-fi fantasy author, the immediate follow-up is, oh, have you written any books? Like, yeah. It's like telling <laughs> yeah, someone you you're an author is not actually proof of industry. Like you can just <laughs> something you can do in your spare time in your backyard for, for shits and giggles. So, yeah, you, ha- you have to preface it with something that makes you look like a bit of a tosser, sadly. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, the conversation goes to weird places. Yeah, of course. And so, but you 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 haven't always been a writer. I'm I'm actually I'm interested to hear about your journey as, I suppose, a reader first, but also a writer. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit about like little Jay Kristoff. What what was he into, and what kind of shenanigans did get did he get up to when he when you were a kid? I mean, the first book that I, I I guess my gateway drug into fantasy was The Hobbit, which is probably a bit of a cliche, but I still remember. I was in grade two and we had these weird, they were kind of anthologies, I guess, of great fiction. Uh, and there would be a chapter of a bunch of different books. So, you know, I Am the Cheese and The Hobbit and whatever else. Uh, and the chapter for The Hobbit they had in there was chapter five, Riddles in the Dark. And I read that in class. And I remember by the end of that lesson, I was bouncing in my seat, waiting for mm-hmm. the bell to ring so I could run to the library and find this book. Because uh, I, yeah, it, it, hit me like no other nothing that i had ever read before hit me uh and the f- when i read that book that was the first time i felt like i was reading a book that was written for me because mm. i was you know i was a weird nerdy little kid and i liked weird nerdy stuff and i had never i had never experienced that before i still remember what it was like opening those pages for the first time and seeing the map of middle earth and feeling like i was somewhere totally different like i wasn't in my place anymore i was in a, a different world you know that was 
magic. And I still get that feeling now when I open up fantasy novels and see that map that, that takes me right back to when I was eight years old and, and discovering Middle Earth for the first time. So that was my gateway drug. But weirdly enough, I kind of quickly fell into horror and sci-fi. So I started reading Stephen King at a really young age. Um, we had a news agency at the shopping center where my mother did the grocery shopping every week and she would drop me off at the news agency so I wouldn't bother her while she was going around doing the shopping. Uh, and this was in the 80s, so they actually had like books and stuff in news agencies, and there was an entire section of the shelf that was devoted to Stephen King. And so I used to just sit in the aisle and pick a Stephen King book off the shelf and sit there and read it for an hour until mum came back and picked me up. And I would have a, we would have a bus ticket. I would rip off a little bit of the bus ticket and put it in the pages to mark my place and then hide my book at the back of the stack because in my head it was my book. I just didn't pay for it. <laughs> so when I came back next week, I'd be able to find my place and just pick up reading again. I wish I knew the name of the dude who ran that news agency because never once did he come by and say, first of all, this isn't a library kid, get out. But second of all, you're a kid. You shouldn't be reading Stephen King, get out. He just <laughs> let me do my thing. So I wish I knew who he was so I could thank him. Yeah, what a legend. Yeah, he was great. Uh, and then, and yeah, so- I, I kind of fell into sci-fi. I discovered Asimov and Frank Herbert. Um, and, yeah, went, went on a whole sci-fi trip for a really long time. So it was a few years before I came back to fantasy, uh, strangely enough, and, you know, read The Balgariot and, you know, that, those kind of great 80s and 70s doorstopper epic fantasy times. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was a weird journey. And and so did did that set the scene for you to want to become a writer or like how did you did you ever consider that as a career or is that something that happened a little bit later in life? Yeah, it happened later. It wasn't even really something that in my head I thought you could do. You know, the authors weren't regular people. That was something magic. Mm. Um, mm. So I I originally wanted to be a graphic designer. That's what I studied at university. I was good at art in high school. So that was what I studied at uni and that was what I ended up doing for a living. Weirdly enough, I fell into advertising and worked as a creative for years in advertising agencies. So I was writing ads for, you know, 13 years or something. Um, and essentially, if you're, if you're writing ads, you're telling stories. You're just telling them in 30-second blocks. Like a good TV commercial is essentially a story. And if you can write a story in 30 seconds with maybe 100 words, then you could probably write a story with a hundred thousand. So in my spare time, unbeknownst to anyone after, I don't know, maybe 10 years in the game, I just started writing a book. I just had an idea for a scene and I wrote it down and that scene became a chapter and I just kept working on it. I didn't even tell my wife that I was writing it because I never honestly thought I would finish it. But I fell in love with the idea of writing every day. The weird thing about working in advertising is you're spending a lot of your creative energy for other people. Um, mm. first of all, you're, you're trying to convince people to buy things they don't need with money they don't have. But second of all, you have very little control over the end product. You might write the best script that you've ever written in your life. And then it goes to the client and then it goes into market research and it just gets torn to pieces. And it's, it's a pretty heartbreaking way to make a living because you watch your babies just getting murdered constantly. It's, it's a good, it's a good way to build up a thick skin in terms of critique. Like you very quickly abandon ego. Um, but yeah, you don't have any control. So when I was working on the book in my spare time, that was something that was just for me, that I had complete control over. Um, and that ended up being my first novel. It was a bad novel, as most first novels tend to be, but it got me in love with the idea of writing every day and going someplace that was 
that was totally mine. So that was the start of the journey. But that wasn't until I was in my mid-30s. So, yeah, it took yeah. me a long time to figure out what I was actually supposed to be doing with my life. And, and did I hear correctly that that was a vampire book as well? It was, okay. yeah. That first one was a vampire novel. And weirdly enough, I mean, the, the timing was terrible. I wrote it, I think I was writing it in 2008, which was like at the tail end of Twilight Hysteria. Twilight. Yeah. So writing a vampire novel at the tail end of this massive trend was probably not the best use of my time in terms of writing something that was marketable. I mean, it was a good use of time in terms of that got me into the habit of writing every day. It taught me how to write a book, but yeah, it wasn't a great move in terms of making something commercial. But one of the world building ideas in that novel is the foundation of the world building in empire. So, you know, 13 years later, I circled back to that idea. So it, it wasn't wasted time. Yeah. And so then you, you released Lotus War and then you met Amy Kaufman. And yeah. it seems like that's when really things went a bit mental for you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Illumina was the, the book that kind of let Amy and I both quit our day jobs, which is pretty hard to do as a spec fig writer working in Australia. Um, mm. You've got the tyranny of distance and also, you know, just budgets here are smaller, but Illuminate kind of, it, it got a, a big push through our US publishers. Um, and yeah, we, we kind of didn't look back after that point. So we were very, yeah, I mean, and for those who, who haven't read that, like it's, it's YA sci-fi and it's a super intriguing book. I had a, I actually had a lawyer in Melbourne recommend it to me and oh, cool. um, she was like, you've got to read, she, you've got to read this book. I know you read a lot on Kindle and audiobooks, but you've got to buy it. And so I bought it and I'm like turning the thing upside down while I'm reading yeah. it sideways because <laughs> just the way it's laid out and the fonts are like, it's, it's not just the words don't just tell a story, the way the words are laid out, tell a story. Um, and I know there's a name for that, but I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but I mean, just, it, do you think, yeah. It, I, I, it's almost a graphic novel. That, that was kind of my graphic design training coming back to mm. the fore. So I, in, in the first novel, I designed a lot of those pages myself, just the way that the timing worked in terms of production. We kind of got crunched towards the end of the production cycle and it was easier for me to just do the pages myself and send them to the designer rather than try and explain what we wanted, how we saw it. Mm. So I would do kind of rough layouts and just spam them to the designer every day. Um, so we worked pretty close hand in hand, me and a, a lady named Heather. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of my my graphic design art student training coming to use. So yeah, anyone tells you that an art degree is no value, they're they're telling you lies. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, like I'm curious, was that was that a hard sell? Like when like when you pitched that, did you pitch it just on the strength of the story, or was that always? Like from the from the start, you're like, no, it's it's going to be laid out a bit differently, and it's it's like a cross between a novel and a graphic novel, and that's just how it's going to be. Yeah, that was how we sold it. So we wrote, Amy and I wrote, I think the first 120 pages of the book, and I laid it out again using that kind of graphic design training. I got into a design program and laid out the book like we saw the book actually looking, so people mm. would have, you know, ed editors. Sometimes editors aren't the most visually minded people, so it's easier to demonstrate what you mean rather than explain what you mean. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, as part of that pitch document, we sent out a 120-page sample of how we saw the book looking in our heads. And I think that was, yeah, 
in hindsight, that was a really smart move because it allowed people to know exactly what we were talking about without having to imagine it. You know, it's one thing to tell someone, it's another thing to show them. You know, it's one of the golden rules of writing. So it works in pitching novels as well as actual novel writing. Yeah. And so then you've had a massive success with YA sci fi and you go and write an adult dark fantasy book in Nevernight. So. Yeah. It seems like an unusual move. Like if you know, it's like from the outside looking in, like, yes, I'm doing well with sci-fi. I'm gonna write dark fantasy for a totally different market. Yeah, what is this um, about doing? <laughs> but it was also it made sense because it was solo and Lotus War had become before. So like were there any like did you did you think hard about that or it was just like, no, this is what I'm doing and you were kind of always on that track? Um, in terms of Korea, no, I didn't really think about it at all. I mean, I probably should have, uh, but I was still a bit of a baby back then. You know, Illuminae was our second series and and I was writing Nevernight when we were writing Illuminae. So I was kind of writing them concurrently. I didn't know. You know, Illuminae was such a weird thought. Amy and I had no idea what would happen with it. We didn't, we didn't know if it would sell. We thought people would either think, you know, this is just, crazy stupid or crazy genius and we had no idea which way it was going to flip so nevernight was something that i was working on concurrently by myself and it was kind of a extension of of lotus wars yeah i I was writing i decided to write something a little more adult heavier and darker and i think you know i always fantasy is always my home i i love writing sci-fi but i think i tend to gravitate towards fantasy you know I, i would rather play dungeons and dragons than Starfinder. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I just I kind of naturally fell into Nemanite. It wasn't really a, again, it wasn't something that I planned. Like Nemanite was, it started out as a single chapter. Um, I I witnessed a drunken argument between a couple of my friends on New Year's Eve. They were talking about whether the 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 C bomb was offensive as a word. Um, was two ladies and I stayed well out of that argument, but it, it kind of sparked a thought with me and I went away a few days later and wrote a scene with two people having a similar discussion and that ended up being Chapter 5 in Nevernight. You know, at the end of writing that scene, it was like, who is this girl? I wanted to know who she was and so I wrote a book to kind of find out who she was. So it was kind of organic in that sense. It wasn't really planned. Mm. And so that main character, Mia, has turned into a bit of an icon really in the, the dark fantasy world. I mean, people have her and her her sayings tattooed on their bodies which is pretty yeah it's wild pretty crazy so it's wild yeah yeah like did that like did that take off straight away or was it that kind of slow burn and build no yeah no one no one knew nevernight existed when it first came out (laughs) like it it almost got i mean i got a i got a little bit of profile from illuminate because illuminate hit um I think the year before, Illuminate came out in 2015 and Nevernight came out in 2016. But yeah, there's not a, I mean, there is a crossover between the audiences of Illuminate and Nevernight, but it's not as huge as, as it might be if I was writing mm. adult sci-fi, for example. So when the book came out, it didn't come out with a lot of fanfare. It, it, didn't, it didn't hit any bestseller lists or whatever. Um, Nevernight's success was 100% the product of the readership. You know, the publishers didn't give it a big push. I remember I, I was at Book Expo America in 2016. Uh, we were over there, Amy and I were promoting Gemini. We had like the first ARC runs and we you know, did a bunch of promotional appearances. And I told my US publishers that we're bringing out Nevernight in six months' time. You know, this was 
April or something, and then when I was coming out in September, I'm like, hey, I'm going to be in Chicago on another publisher's dime. You do I have to pay a cent? I'm going to be there. Do we want to do any promo for Nevernight at all? And they're like, eh, nah, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> so I had like, I had 10 ARCs in a cardboard box and that was it. That was the only promo I got for that whole book. But strangely enough, it was, it was a book and a character that resonated with a particular kind of reader and on the back of a couple of really prominent booktubers first, um, Pierre Ford and Little Book Owl. Katrina Finney, um, they became kind of evangelists for the series and they were just talking about it constantly. And on the back of their recommendations, a bunch of other people discovered it. And by the time God's Grave came out a year later, it had become a thing. Like I remember getting emails from my editor and my agent at the time saying, something weird is happening with this book. Like usually you see sale trends kind of taper off, but every week it's selling more and more copies. Like this doesn't usually happen, so congratulations. Um, and so, yeah, by the time God's Grave came out, the fandom had really developed and we started getting a whole bunch of amazing fan art, which also really helped, I think. Like, the fan art community just kind of fell in love with Mia's aesthetics, so people were just doing incredible artwork of her. Um, and, yeah, that that kept growing over the course of God's Grave's release cycle. So by the time Dark Dawn hit, everyone was talking about it, and when Dark Dawn dropped, the, the book became a the series became a best-selling series like it hit sunday times hit usa today that was all on the back of readers like no publisher push whatsoever it was pure word of mouth so yeah i have the best readers in the world and i'm eternally grateful to them for that yeah that's i mean that's that's so cool to hear it's wild it's awesome i remember i did a i was i was was living in venice for a month working on dark dawn because i had to get out of the house i'm I'm a miserable bastard to be around when I'm drafting, uh, particularly when the book isn't working. I'm just this, I am just a black cloud in the house. <laughs> so my wife sent me out of the country to go and finish this book just so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be around her. And I was living in Venice for a month working on the book because Venice was kind of the inspiration for the, the city called God's Grave, which is the heart of the Nemonite trilogy. And I had a meet and greet for a few readers who knew that I was there. They were kind of following me on Instagram and saw me posting pictures. And readers came from all over Italy, like, I don't know, 30 or 40 people showed up. The books weren't even published in Italy at this point. Um, but I got a chance to sit down and talk to them. One of the things I asked them was, well, how the hell do you even know about me? These books aren't published in Italy yet. And probably 80, 90% of them said they had heard about me through a couple of, through those bookstagrammers that I've mentioned, Piera and Kaz. So it was this weird online it was it was like an std almost it was an infection like just spreading from one reader to two readers to four readers to eight um and it just kind of blew up over the course of yeah two two and a half years so thank you anybody who was part of that because yeah readers were the, the whole and sole reason that series did what it did yeah and i like so, so i guess speaking of infections we're now we're now back to a vampire Series. Yeah, and, good segue. And uh, you know, come full circle from from your first unpublished book, and probably the most similar tonally to Nevernight. Yeah, Nevernight series. Um, so I mean, this is definitely one for you know for those fans. Like I, I was a, a big Nevernight fan, and um, I'm, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm halfway through, and I'm like, this is so great. So. Oh, I'm glad you're enjoying. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, it's it's really really great. And um, so, 
what was the what like did you just have a bee in your bonnet about the whole vampire thing like and and what like i'm i can spot a few easter eggs and stuff in there in terms of influences um (laughs) particularly i mean there's some obvious ones um like with gabriel and um lestat de lioncourt sharing a very similar um surname and sure louis louis bettencourt and things like that um like was interview with a vampire a big um a big influence and what were some of the other influences on on this book yeah interview is massive um interview is one of my favorite books of all time uh, mm. and i actually when i decided on the framing device um being that gabriel is in prison awaiting execution and being interviewed so he's telling his story out loud um i actually went back and studied the way Anne rice did that in interview um, there's a mm. there's a few books that i that i went back and studied craft wise to figure out how the authors did what they did so interview was one name of the wind was another and blood song by anthony ryan was the third because they both they they all approach it slightly differently uh, and i wanted to see which one kind of resonated with me the best i wanted i wanted the chronicler who is recording gabriel's story to be omnipresent in the text i didn't want him to be kind mm. of bookending chapters or bookending the scenes I, I wanted him to be actively involved in a conversation i wanted it to feel like two guys talking at a pub um, and so the historian is kind of constantly interjecting asking for clarification or giving gabriel some lip or whatever they're kind of bouncing off each other constantly and that's more akin to something like interviewed than say name of the wind so the chronicler in name of the wind he only drops in in his own chapters you know otherwise it's just quoth talking uh, and that felt a little bit compartmentalized. So yeah, it, in, interview is a is a huge influence on this book for sure. Um, both both tonally, and aesthetically, and structurally. I, th- yeah. I think Ms. Rice in the back. Oh, you do? Okay, I haven't haven't got to the, the the back matter yet. But um, yeah, I mean, she uh, that was one of my favorite series ever, and I think oh man, I love it grew up Loved at a similar it. time and like you know and movies like the lost boys and blade and oh yeah kind of, lost yeah. boys is my favorite vampire film ever there's another one called with the rice and the maggots that's like oh scene great yeah and into my so, memory there's an idea in there that i'm gonna try and use in empire uh well not not in book one but um in subsequent books the idea that a vampire's mesmerism is so strong that they can make you think you're seeing something that's not there. That's a, that's a cool mm. thought. I'm not quite sure how to do that yet, but it, that maggot scene, if you see that in one of the later Empire books, it's directly inspired by that maggot scene in Lost Woods. Unreal. And so um, you kind of laconically posted um, on your socials at one point that this was for those who liked them before they sparkled. Um <laughs> And I just like had a little giggle to myself and I was like, that's, that's fantastic. I obviously didn't make it into the front matter of the, um, the no, that was, that was, that was a bit of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> some, well, most people took it in the spirit that it was intended. Some people didn't take it very well. Um, and, you know, oh, really? Did you get a bit of the risk? Oh, a little bit. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I very quickly, you know, I, I am, I am absolutely adamant that anybody who is working in genre fiction today owes Stephanie Meyer an enormous debt of gratitude. I don't give a shit whether you like those books. If you didn't like them, great. They weren't for you. But that woman 
single-handedly almost brought an entire generation of readers to Specfic. And they were 13-year-old when they arrived and now they're 28, 29. And some of them are still reading books and they wouldn't be here if not for Stephanie Meyer. So, you know, whether Twilight was your jam or not, fine. Everyone's allowed their own opinion, but pay that woman some respect, man, because most of us wouldn't be working if not for her. Like, I mean, E.L. E. James things. wouldn't. Yeah, E.L. James wouldn't have Fifty Shades of Grey without her either. That was for sure. And, and Fifty Shades of Grey was transformative in in terms of keeping the publishing industry afloat, keeping bookstores open. Like those phenomenally successful titles are the way that publishers gamble on smaller, riskier titles. Like it's like the music industry. Your Lady Gaga's allow a record company to invest in some weird little garage band that most people probably will never hear of or buy the record. You know, those phenomenon allow the entire industry to, to exist. So, yeah, whether you like E.L. James, Stephanie Meyer, Suzanne Collins, whoever, like pay them some goddamn respect because I wouldn't have a job if not for them. Mm. And like, so vampires like have kind of captivated people for a, like a really long time um, from – Bram Stoker was a, like, Dracula was a smash hit in its day. Twilight's one of the biggest smash hits ever. Yeah. Um, I mean, Interview with a Vampire in that series was an absolutely incredible as well. It's like, huge. what, what, what is, what do you think it is about vampires that makes them such an ageless monster? Um, pardon, pardon the pun. <laughs> uh, I think it's because there are a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people. Um, you know, werewolves or zombies or whatever, they tend to be kind of one note. But vampires, if you talk to a dozen different vampire fans, stands, whatever, and ask them what about vampires intrigues them or attracts them, you'll probably get a dozen different answers. You know, mm. back in Bram Stoker's day, they were, you know, depending on who you read, they were an exploration of illicit sexuality uh, as well as just straight horror. If you look at, Stephanie Meyer's work, it's about, you know, it, it's its almost an abstinence play. Uh, it's about romance and forever love, the idea that the, the thing you love will love you forever because it is forever. If you look at The Lost Boys, you know, that that's a power fantasy. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't know about you, but when I was watching The Lost Boys, I was supposed to go into Edgar and Alan Frog and Corey Haynes' character, Sam, like the young teenage protagonist. But as soon mm. as I saw The Lost Boys, I'm like, yeah, fuck, I want to be those guys. Like, they're the cool ones walking around in leather jackets and staying up all night and doing whatever the hell they want. You know, that that's an exploration of power, being being unable to be hurt and going out and hurting the ones you want to. Um, so it depends. Like the the monsters are a reflection of the society in which they are written. And vampires' ability to change over the years into, you know, a bunch of different iterations is what's kept them kind of evergreen. I think, you know, in the seventies interview was, you know, interview was an exploration of loss and grief and time uh, and ennui. And then you look 20 years later and a tone of something like Buffy, like the Buffy TV series, it's yeah. night and day. Like they're completely different vibes and aesthetics and tones, but they're both still ultimately about the same creature but they're just approached by different people in different ways so yeah they're they're versatile i guess is is what makes them evergreen um you can look at them and and write them a bunch of different ways yeah i mean it like even 
there's a lot of lore about like how you actually change into a vampire and some is like you just get bitten some you have to actually suck the blood of the vampire as well you've got a really interesting take of it in in your series do you want to tell me a little bit about that and where that idea came from I mean that was the idea that was from that first book back in 2008 so in in empire I guess the key point of difference between my vampires and others is that they can't choose who changes and who doesn't uh, and they mm. can't choose when the person changes and when they don't. So you get bitten by a vampire, you get drained to death, you die. Sometimes you just stay dead. That's it. Sorry. Uh, sometimes you wake up 30 seconds later and you're trapped in the body that you died in. So you're kind of young and beautiful and perfect forever. And sometimes you rot like a regular dead body does for five or six days. And then you wake up and you're a vampire. And so your body has degraded and you're more importantly, your mind has degraded along with it. Your, your intelligence has decomposed along with your flesh. So there are kind of two castes, I guess, of vampires in Empire. One's called High Bloods. They're the, the young and beautiful and perfect forever kind. And the other ones are called Foul Bloods. They're the, the un, poor unfortunates who kind of decomposed before they turned. So they're possessed of all a vampire's kind of strength and speed and supernatural resilience, but they don't have human intelligence. They're kind of animalistic. They're just, they're animated corpses driven by thirst um and that that has always been the way of things but 27 years ago in the novel there was a, a kind of environmental cataclysm called day's death no one quite knows what caused it but the sun doesn't shine as brightly in the sky anymore there's kind of a you know a pall over the sky which resulted in a whole bunch of environmental collapse you know plants and crops stopped growing a whole bunch of animals died out but one of the unfortunate side effects was that vampires figured out that the sunlight doesn't kill them anymore they can go out in the sun they're not as strong as they are at night but they don't die so all of a sudden these vampires started popping up all over the empire and doing what vampires do but these foul bloods who would traditionally just die in their first sunrise because they're you know animalistic intelligence they wouldn't know to stay out of the sun now there's no sunlight to kill them so they're kind of their, their population is exploding. There's nothing to keep them in check. So there's a whole bunch of bad, there's a confluence of bad things happening in this empire all, all at once with the result that humanity uh, very, very quickly becomes an endangered species. And it's such a, I mean, uh, it's such a cool concept in terms of having this spectrum of vampires because you, I feel like you get to retain the romance of the beauty and the live forever sort of thing. But then you also retain that real monstrous, like visibly monstrous um, effect as well with, with, so you've kind of, you've cheated. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I got the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the vampires, the high bloods, the intelligent ones are still monsters, but they're monstrous in Mm. a different way. Um, They're basically amoral, you know, they're, they're an extension of the of the Anne Rice school of thought in that if you live long enough, everything you were erodes away. Like if you kill somebody every night to maintain your own existence, very quickly you stop seeing people as people and start seeing them as food. So on a long enough timeline, even the most morally upright person will eventually fall to that, that moral decay. So the high bloods are monstrous in that sense. Uh, whereas the foul bloods are just straight monsters. Mm. And so in terms of like normally around about this time, we would start talking about like what are some of the, like someone, imagine someone's just read Empire um, and they're like, 
oh my god, I've got the bug. I'm thirsty. I want I want more blood. Like, what are some of the books that you would recommend to them in in the vampire space to to sink their fangs into? I mean, interview is interview is the big one. If you haven't read Interview with the Vampire and you're reading Empire, um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that would ever happen. But yeah, Interview is the number one. Um, Salem's Lot was another huge one for me growing up. Mm. It's still one of my favorite vampire novels of all time. Um, and that uh, the vampires in that are are kind of akin to the vampires in Empire in that they are otherworldly and unknowable and monstrous. Um, and there's some religious interplay uh, that exists in Stephen King's vampire universe that doesn't exist in something like Emp- uh, Interview, for example. So the vampires in Interview aren't repelled in any particular fashion by holy symbols or they can freely enter holy ground. So my vampires are, are more kingy in, in that sense. Um, so they were the two big ones. Uh, what else? What else would I recommend? I haven't read I haven't read many vampire books lately because I'm writing my own. So I don't want to mm. I don't want to riff too heavily on other people's work. I am watching The Vampire Diaries on television, which is surprisingly entertaining. Uh, I did not think I would be a fan of it at all. I wouldn't have put myself in the in the target market in the demographic. But man, it's a great show. Like if you're a if you are a genre writer, you could do far worse than studying the Vampire Diaries because in terms of plot, it's just a mile a minute. Like the writers on that show do more in one episode than lesser writers would do in an entire season of television. There is so much going on constantly. There'll be three different subplots in an episode serving the metaplot of that episode and the metaplot of that episode will be serving the larger metaplot over the series arc. Like, it's extraordinary. I, I never thought I would hear myself say this. And, and it's weird that I went in with that preconception because I try not to. But, yeah, if you are a genre fiction writer, you could do far worse than studying how the writers on that show operate because, yeah, it, it's great. I love it. I never thought I would, but Team Damon for life. <laughs> <laughs> That's too good. Um, I'm not it's good, about- man. You should check it out. I, I'm serious. Yeah, I'll show like, you. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, funnily enough, like one of my good friends, he plays, uh, I think the character's called Galen in season four. And I haven't actually, like, I feel like I should watch it just to. Oh, you just should. To watch. You should support your buddy. Yeah. 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 I mean, he was, he was in Twilight as well. He was one of the, one of the Voltari in Twilight. Oh, that's so, um, cool. He, he's just like the vampire guy. I haven't, um, I haven't seen Twilight. I, I probably should. Um, I have avoided it thus far. I, I mean, it's, I know it's probably not for me, but then I knew that Vampire Diaries wasn't for me, and it totally it and oh yeah, totally lit the spark. So yeah, who knows? Don't don't prejudge anything, I guess. And you know, that's part of the reason why I started this podcast was just trying to get people to read outside the genres that they normally read in. You know, yeah. So some people are like just lit fic, and that's all they want to read. And some people enjoy biographies. Some people enjoy thrillers. Um, and I just feel like. Man, there's some sci-fi thrillers that you probably love if you like thrillers. Definitely, there, you know, there's some historical fiction that you would love if you like biography. So um, that's part of my thing. It's like just try and read read outside. So are there any are there any other books outside, I suppose, spec fic um, or sci-fi fantasy that you would recommend to people that, or, or just, I guess, if if you, someone asked, I've got one book to take with me to a desert island. What do I take? Like, what would you what would you say? Like the the greatest book of all time, or just something something weird to recommend. Well, I suppose just something that could be read over and over and and still enjoyed. 
probably the dirt, the Motley Crue biography. <laughs> okay, I haven't read that. Actually, it's funny amazing, enough, man. I've You've had that recommended to me before. I've got to check it out. You've Nikki got to check it out. It is, it is like a time capsule. It's like an era gone that will never, ever come again. Like it's the, it's the craziest shit that you've read, the, the stuff these dudes got up to as just part of their day-to-day existence. It's like you, you do not believe it, but, you know, they've, they've got no real reason to lie. You, you fully believe those, those dudes did that. But, yeah, it's wild. It's, it's, like, it's like a view into an era that will never come again. <laughs> So yeah, and it's, and it's thoroughly entertaining. It's very, very funny. They're very, they're very smart. Well, their ghostwriters are very smart people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I, I will recommend the dirt. I'll have to. Okay, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> you um, check it out. It's crazy. We're we're almost coming up in time. I'd love to just briefly talk to you about art for a little bit because um, Empire of the Vampire has some insane art by Bon yeah. Um She's incredible. So. <sighs> I'm curious, I mean, obviously you've been an art director. Like I'm similar to you. I, I um, fell in love with The Hobbit from an early age and I had this illustrated version that really got me oh, into Alan art. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, just amazing, right? Um, yeah. And I noticed I've got, a, chap- I've got a set over there on my shelf that uh, my UK publisher just sent me this illustrated version of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit that Alan Lee did a bunch of art for. Man, he's incredible. Such a talented man. Yeah, just amazing. And I, I was, I was saying, I, I think, did you get your naming like you name chapters like J.R. Tolkien name chapters? Do you think that's where you get it from, or have you? Is it just because you like naming chapters? No, I just like naming chapters. I feel <laughs> initially the plan in Empire was to not name them, just number them. Um, mm. But it just, it just felt, it just felt odd. Uh, Yep. I'm not sure what is it that compels me to do it. I, I guess maybe give the reader a hint of, of the heartbreak or drama that they're in for. Uh, but, yeah, that was originally the plan, but I didn't stick to it. Yeah, well, you left the footnotes out this time. so No footnotes you know, this there's, time. There's I, that. I did the illustrations instead. Yeah, the footnotes yeah, so were a contentious so, issue. <laughs> <laughs> so about the art, like how did that come about? How did you how did you find Bon? Um and and what do you what do you think it it contributes to the the story overall? Um, I came up with the idea. I always try and do something a little bit weird in my books. Um, so Illuminae obviously was you know a, a pretty much a graphic novel. Uh, in Nevernight, I did a bunch of experimental typography. So when Mia, who's the protagonist, she has the ability to teleport between shadows. And when she does that, the typography will move around the page to kind of indicate to the reader, to give, to give a sense of physicality to the reader beyond what they're actually reading. So having the design of the page inform the action on the page. Uh, and it, it gets pretty crazy towards the end of Dark Dawn when she's coming into her powers, like kind of go su- super cyan mode. Um, and that's just, I think, that's just, I, I like the idea of, pushing the limits of the physical form of books. Um, you know, books haven't changed a hell of a lot in the last few hundred years in terms of their functionality. So I like to push the limit of what that physicality can do. And it, it harkens back to my training as a designer. I'm a visually minded person. So I, I like visual cues as well as linguistic ones. So in Empire, I, 
I was thinking about what I was going to do that was a little bit different. And I stumbled across the thought that, yeah, maybe the, the historian who is recording Gabriel's story is also an artist and will just do sketches. Um, I'm not, I, I honestly couldn't tell you what sparked that thought. I, I think it's maybe just a, a wanker impulse in me to do something a little bit different with every book. I, I'm not sure it's anything more intelligent or deep than that. Um, but I discovered Bond through the fan art community. Strangely enough, she, she was one of those artists who started doing work for Nebonite. I've still got the original piece that she did on the wall behind me of my study. Uh, she did this amazing piece of Mia in God's Grave. And she's got a style that's really unique. You can look at one of Bond's pieces and immediately know it's her. She's, she's got a visual style that's just like nothing else I've ever seen. And it also, in a strange way, it reminds me a little bit of illumination in medieval manuscripts. It's got a, a vaguely stained glass medieval vibe to it which fits i was going to say that yeah absolutely yeah the the aesthetic of her work really fit the 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 kind of visual idea of an illuminated manuscript in a medieval age um so weirdly enough i approached her um i think it was back in 2019 i just shot her an email and asked would she be interested I didn't know she was Australian at the time. I had no idea who she was or where she was from, but it turns out she's an Australian who lives, she literally lives down the road from me. It's just bizarre. She's like two suburbs over. It's just weird. I had no idea she was an Aussie. Um, But as soon as I found out that she was an Aussie and she did, uh, like I I sent her a brief, um, which is the illustration of Gabriel with his his shirt off and his, his tattoos on display, which a lot of people have seen on my Instagram. Uh, and as soon as she did that for me, I knew she was the person for the job, both because, yeah, she's got a style unlike anyone else, but also Aussies have a work ethic unlike anybody else. I don't, I'm not sure what it is about Australians, I think, because we have to do more with less, traditionally speaking, because we are far away from the States and the UK because our budgets are smaller. And, you know, this isn't just in publishing. This is in every aspect of any career. Aussies tend to just go a little bit harder no disrespect to anybody else but yeah the work ethic of the average australian is yeah is really impressive so as soon as i found out bonnie was a melbourne girl that kind of sealed the deal so yeah she's been amazing like she brought her own thoughts to the world like i would send her you know two or three chapters two or three paragraphs sorry of what i was thinking that she could do an illustration for and she would send me back sketches and thoughts and kind of bounce ideas off me so it wasn't like she was just a hired gun. She actually got involved in the world and the design and the aesthetic and brought her own feelings and vibe to it. Um, so, yeah, she's been incredible to work with. Uh, I, I can't praise her highly enough. And some of the pieces that she's done, like I've only shown a few of them on Instagram, particularly the, they're all from early in the book because later in the book, the illustrations get a little bit spoilery, as you can imagine. But some of the pieces that she's done towards the end of the novel I don't think anyone has seen yet other than me and my publishers are just, yeah, spectacular. She's, she's a gun. I, I cannot sing her praises highly enough. Mm. Oh, I can't wait to see it. And so if, um, if people want to see that and they want to engage on Instagram, is that the best place to just engage with you and, and follow what you're doing in general? Yeah. Instagram is my favorite social media platform. Uh, there's a lot more positivity on Instagram than anywhere else I find. Uh, and because I'm visually minded and it's a visual medium, I, I, I tend to spend most of my time over there. Also, you know, I've, like I say, I've been really lucky with the fan arts and the visual arts community. 
So it's easier to engage over on Instagram than anywhere else. So yeah, that that's the place I spend most of my time. I don't I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter anymore. I find that a pretty hostile environment as a general rule. Mm. Uh, and Facebook, yeah, Facebook's fun, but yeah, Instagram is my jam. And it's at Mr. Christoph. If that is correct, follow along. Yes, okay, indeed. and so. And so if anyone wants to follow along, follow follow Jay on Instagram. Um, Empire of the Vampire is out 7th of September, I believe. Is yes. that correct? Yes, in the UK and Australia, yep. So get out there and uh, and spread the virus. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you, Jay, get back to signing some, uh, signing some copies for people to buy. No worries. Thank you very much for your time today, my friend. It was awesome to talk to you. Hi, Tim here. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy the interview I did with Sabah Tahir on YA Fantasy, one with Andy Weir on sci-fi, or a breakdown of action-adventure with Matthew Riley. For those episodes and more, there's a full listing at timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Please remember to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Thanks again, and happy reading. Right
Comforted. Need some comforting.